Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. Last summer, Jay Hoberman, Nick Pinkerton, Ina Archer, and I broke up the tedium of 2016 blockbusters by discussing what was on offer in the summer of 1966 in four cities, Chicago, Cincinnati, Washington, D.C., and New York. This year, in tribute to the various retrospectives going on in New York, especially the Film Society of Lincoln Center's now-playing Series 77, I've revisited the concept with... Maitland McDonough. I'm a film critic, writer, and publisher of 120 Days Books. And... Margaret Barton Fumo, longtime contributor to Film Comment. Focusing on the summer of 1977. It was a great year for horror, with iconic films from Wes Craven and Dario Argento but also for unclassifiable films like Vim Bender's The American Friend and Robert Altman's Three Women. Also, the first Star Wars movie, which later turned out not to be the first movie premiered. Here's our conversation. And Maitland, you lived in New York during that time, so could you talk about some of your favorite haunts? <laughs> I'm in fact a New Yorker born and raised. There actually are some of us. <laughs> and... I fell in love with Times Square because Times Square was where all the kind of movies that I wanted to see were showing. They were showing horror movies, especially Italian and other European horror movies. They were showing martial arts movies, which were not my favorite, but I have to see, I say I saw some great ones. Mm -hmm. They were showing thrillers. And occasionally you even got a, a low-budget American horror film there. Andy Milligan's films, for example, played Times Square. So it really was a feast of what people like to call trash, but I would call a different kind of cinema. Right. And, I mean, we we pulled up some of the movie listings, you know, Village Voice, Papers of the Time, and going through them, how much of that did you see, or what do you remember seeing anything in particular? I saw a lot of the films on this list, mm -hmm. actually. In particular, The Hills Have Eyes, mm -hmm. which is really what turned me on to Wes Craven. I saw Exorcist 2, which is interesting, partly because it is one of the most hated sequels of all time, yes. and yet is not a bad film. It's just not the film people wanted to see. It wasn't the right sequel for people. And of course, Suspiria, which yes. was my first Dario Argento film in a cinema, and it certainly set my life on a, a certain path. I mean, my first book was a book about Dario Argento. So... Mm. I owe that to that summer of 77. Yeah. Well, did you see the new Suspiria? The, well, I shouldn't say new. The Suspiria that they found in like that trunk in Chicago? I have not seen that yet, but I understand that there really isn't anything different in it. No. So, uh, and I've seen, God knows, more different prints of Suspiria than I can really even keep track of. Mm -hmm. 
And Suspiria never changes, to be honest. Suspiria yeah. is always the whacked out, psychedelic, music-driven trip that it always was. I mean, it is just it's candy-colored. Mm -hmm. It's driven by that incredible score. And it's always a hallucination, no matter when or where you see it. Right. And how would you describe the audiences that you were seeing these with? Was there a huge variance between people who would show up for The Hills at Vise versus Suspiria versus the Kung Fu films? Times Square audiences really fell into two groups, I think. There was the daytime group, and that's the group I was usually in. Because, to be honest, some of those theaters were a little bit scary at night. Mm -hmm. And... I started going to them when I was very young, and I have to say, never had any trouble in a Times Square theater. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever even gave me the side eye, let alone bothered me. I mean, I, I've told this so often that now it sounds like a routine to me, but the first time anybody tried to feel me up in a theater was at Cinema Village, and, <laughs> and it was during Sallow. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So the Times Square theaters were a positive safe haven by comparison. The Friday night audiences were really great. And I would occasionally go on a Friday night to mm -hmm. see a big horror film that I really wanted to see, like Blood Beach. And my really <laughs> want to see factor did not translate into I'm really so glad I saw that movie because right. Blood Beach is not so great. But the thing I remember most about that is that the theater was so packed that I had to sit in the balcony. They okay. usually didn't open the balconies in, the, in those theaters because it was just hard to keep an eye on what was going on up there. And mm -hmm. the, the staffs in those theaters did try to keep an eye on what was going on. But that balcony was not only open, it was full. And there was so much dope being smoked up there that I swear I had a contact high for the entire time, which probably made Blood Beach as good as Blood Beach could possibly be. Well, Margaret, so you nodding your head in excitement. Are there any of the films that you know that you were going through the listings um, or that Malin mentioned that you do not exist? <laughs> Neither of us existed. But were you live then? Were there anything that sort of jumped out at you where I like, I have to see this? Well, I thought I'd actually talk a little bit about Exorcist 2, The yes. Heretic, because mm -hmm. I'm also a fan of, well, I don't know if you're a fan of it, but... It's a much better film than it's given credit for. As yes. I said, it was just not yes. the film people wanted to see. Yes. It was just the, critically just dragged through the mud, whereas I don't think it actually bombed at the box office. I think it did fairly respectably at the box office, but I'm also fond of that film. Um, I thought I'd just talk about it a little bit, describe it. It was directed by the one and only John Borman, who's also known for for many wild images of slightly convoluted films sometimes. And it stars Richard Burton as a priest who is looking to clear the name of Father Marin, who is the priest in the first Exorcist, who is played by Max von Sydow, who's now being accused of heresy because he says he claimed that he saw the devil in the flesh. Mm -hmm. And... Richard Burton tracks down Regan, who's the girl from the first Exorcist, played by Linda Blair, who is undergoing experimental psychiatric treatment administered by a doctor played by Louise Fletcher. And this treatment includes this machine <laughs> that somehow synchronizes two people's hypnotic states so that they're able to share visions. And <laughs> so... Richard Burton and Linda Blair hook themselves up to this machine, which uses two light bulbs 
that flash in the subject's eyes and very slowly and dramatically will flash slower and slower until the two people are matched up in their altered state of consciousness. This is why movies are great. Yeah. Continue. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I thought if, uh, you know, I should mention this. (laughs) Well, it's great because it makes it sound now like a Ken Russell film is coming. Yes, Yes, exactly. That it it wouldn't, it it, it could be in a double bill with altered states. I think the the lower end of the double (laughs) bill with altered states. So they use this machine and Linda Blair escorts Richard Burton through her vision of this unnamed African village (laughs) where he discovers the demon Pazuzu, who possessed Regan in the first film, apparently. And he also discovers a young boy named Kukumo, who was also possessed by Pazuzu. And so he and... (laughs) Regan then set out to annihilate Pazuzu and, you know, that's the rest of the film. But I'm very fond of it for many different reasons. I mean, mainly the look of it. I'm always drawn to the look of films. I guess that's just my thing. But it's 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 very wild and jumbled and edited way too quickly. But there's some images in the film that stand out, especially when they use the machine and there's a double exposure they go into the visions and their miniatures and Brack projection and the whole lot that John Borman is really known for. And so I greatly admire that. And then other random, totally random things in the film that, <laughs> that I'm sure people hated who hated the film and people who love it, love it, such as her tap dancing class, which is in there really for no reason at all, except for dramatic effect and for the aesthetic of her sequins, I think. But, yeah, I like it. I give it two thumbs up. And, you know, Borman did say that he wanted to make a mystical film mm. rather than a horror film. And, you know, The Exorcist is a very high-toned movie. But let's face it, it's a horror film right. through and through. You know, both horror of the supernatural and also horror of the body and mm. sometimes in, in a very Cronenbergian way. And that is just not what The Heretic delivered. It mm. delivered something much more ethereal, I think that just did not click with people who thought, oh, wow, we're going to get more of the same. Because, of course, that is why you make sequels and why you go to sequels, mm-hmm. because moviegoers do want to see more of the thing they liked. Mm-hmm. The trap being that you also have to give them something different, mm-hmm. because if it's the, the exact same thing they saw before, then they're just going to say, oh, but I already saw that. Mm-hmm. And I think Borman maybe made the mistake, if you could call it a mistake, of giving them more of the thing that they hadn't seen already. Mm-hmm. And not quite enough of the thing that they liked in the previous movie. The head spinning and the, yeah. The, the head spinning, the yeah. pea soup. Yeah, yeah. The blasphemy, yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> and of course, yes. meanwhile, Friedkin went on to make the movie that everybody really hated, which was Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Right. Also 77. 77. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And which I think is a terrific movie, mm-hmm. actually. But I agree. People yeah. just somehow really, really hated it. Mm-hmm. I've never really understood the hate for, for Sorcerer. I mean, right. how about you guys? No, I mean, it's a slow build. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a remake, uh, for people who don't know, it's a remake of Wages of Fear, you know, a film that was made in France in the early 50s and um, 
that's almost more of an action film than Sorcerer is. But Sorcerer has an amazing soundtrack. So if you don't uh, feel like tracking down the movie, which is weirdly not available a lot of places, mm-hmm. just just put on the soundtrack and uh, soak up those vibes. And it let is, Tangerine Dream take Tangerine you Dream. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is a really, I mean, it's so it's so beautiful mm-hmm. to, and yeah, it is it is a super slow build in it. It also really doesn't fit the mold, I guess, of like typical new Hollywood stuff, you know, where it's sort of clearly referencing these older classical Hollywood genres and reinventing them. This is really just like chamber dramas on a truck. I think it's because of Sorcerer 2 that Michael Mann employed Tangerine Dream for Heat. Absolutely. A fantastic movie. Another fantastic movie, yeah. Say more about Sorcerer. Yeah, it's all about tension. And it has a a lot of a uh, exposition in the beginning, too, Mm -hmm. which at first I was like, where is this? going because it doesn't it doesn't say where it's going but then we realize it's the backstory of each of the characters which i greatly appreciated in hindsight it's very dingy it's it's very dirty and dusty and muddy and it's a lot of fun i mean i like how he sets up these characters that are just totally unlikable you know and he's like here are the main characters of the film (laughs) go with it you know Um, and then you still become invested in their lives at least you want them to survive but these are really like bad dudes on this terrible suicide mission really right they are the guys who deserve to be doing this yeah yeah exactly obviously a, a more recent example of this premise would be like suicide squad where it's like no one's good but then they sort of pushed out and they're like, no, actually, everyone's secretly good. It's mm-hmm. fine. But mm-hmm. um, no, there's they're not good. They're yeah, they're, yeah, they're actually terrible. It's fine. Freaking uh, saw something and sort of stuck to it. Yeah. But um, about um, Exorcist 2 and sequels and giving people what they want. I mm-hmm. noticed there's a there's a little bit of theme of that in the summer of 77 with yes. in the wake of Jaws. Right. You know. Jaws was, I think, 75. Yeah, which would sort of set the mold, or is seen as setting the mold yeah. uh, for the the summer movie template and yeah. blockbusters. But. And then in as late as 77, you still have these films like Orca. Yes. <laughs> Tentacles. <laughs> and I really like Tentacles. That's another one I could talk about. <laughs> I talked about briefly on a, my first podcast, yes. actually, because it was something I had seen recently, but... Anyways, just to boil it down to one thing, there's a beautiful long take in Tentacles that's really compelling with a very nice music set to it. And I was very impressed by this, like, really good shot in this film that's pretty trashy. (laughs) But again, it it really is part of a thing that you see in 77 where you've got all of these movies that involve the sea and the underwater. You Mm -hmm. have the orca, you have Tintorera, Killer Shark. The Deep. You have the deep, yeah, which is also Peter Benchley. So it really is slopping over, if you will, mm-hmm. from Jaws in 1975, both high and low. You see the influence mm-hmm. of that don't go in the water mm-hmm. thing. Still. Still. What else would you like to talk about in well, terms of things that you saw? Well, for me, one of the most influential films of that year was The Hills Have Eyes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely the movie that put Wes Craven on the map. I mean, Last House on the Left was one of those movies that a certain subsection of horror moviegoers saw. But it wasn't really, I think, associated with a particular filmmaker or a particular theme other than that terror of family home invasion, Mm -hmm. which was going around a lot in the 70s. 
But in Hills Have Eyes, you begin to see a film that really is about the horror of family and the mm. horror of families. And you basically have two families in that movie. You have the mutant Hill family, and then you have the all-American family who are explicitly mentioned in the movie's radio tagline, which was, they were a normal American family. They didn't want to kill, but they didn't want to die. <laughs> so there you've set it up. You have these two families, neither of which want to die, one of which is perfectly willing to kill. That's yeah. the, the Hill family. And then what Craven called the white bread family, who don't want to, but are ultimately willing to, are willing to revert to their savage roots. And I know that Craven took a great deal of pleasure in taking that really ordinary American family. There's the dad who used to be a cop. Mm -hmm. There's the mom who was a homemaker and dedicated herself to raising her two kids. And there, there are the two white bread kids. Like, they could not be whiter white people <laughs> if, you, if you dunked them in a can of paint. And the dogs. And the dogs, <laughs> yes. The two good dogs. <laughs> Although, isn't one of them named Killer? I thought it was Beauty and Beast. It's Beauty and Beast. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Beast killer. Yeah. You know, so e they even have fairy tale dogs. Right, right. It's just, it's perfection. And then they are driven back to their savage roots. And it, it's quite something. I mean, it's a movie that works incredibly well and that sets up a kind of dichotomy that you don't see in a lot of less thoughtful horror movies of that period. Because the mutant family for all their mutation and for all their savagery, are as close and as good, if you will, a family as the normal American family. They are monsters because the normal American family perceived them that way, but they're not actually monsters in their own world. And that was thoughtful in a way that a lot of movies weren't. And that, I think, is why Hills Have Eyes stuck with a lot of people who saw it then. Yeah. I'm sure that both of you have seen it and have had that same feeling about yeah. it. And the so. action is just great. I mean, oh. the action is really great scenes, I think, that people really were drawn to. Could you speak a little bit about Wes Craven's critical standing at that point? Because if you watch Last House on the Left, which is, of course, a remake of The Virgin Spring, but then also it has sort of the same premise where it's this two families of a kind pit against each other and vibing off of the Manson murders. But to watch The Last House on the Left, you can really appreciate how really strange it is and kind of surreal. Like there are parts of that film that feel like uh, 70s PSA almost, where they're just running through the forest and enjoying, you know, enjoying each other's company. And then there's just this absolutely brutal stuff. But again, it's it takes a while for people to appreciate those things. You said that this really, you know, increased Craven in your eyes, but was that sort of a general feeling or? Well, I think it was a general feeling among people who were watching genre films. It was mm -hmm. not a general feeling among critics in general. Right. Wes Craven still had the reputation for making nasty, horrible, violent, disturbing movies. Mm -hmm. And Craven, of course, was very much a thinking filmmaker, mm -hmm. very much an educated filmmaker, very much somebody who wasn't just looking at the horror genre or violent action movies and saying, oh, man, I want to get a piece of the money that you can get making that kind of movie. He was using it as a vehicle to talk about real social issues. And I mean, he's somebody who was deeply concerned with a growing dichotomy in America between the haves and the have-nots mm -hmm. and the way in which the have-nots were demonized. And I think that's something we're seeing right now, yeah. the idea that being poor 
is a bad thing, not just because you lack material resources, right. but it's being treated as a, as a morally bad thing. Right. You know, if you're, uh, yeah, you deserve it. You made a bad choice and you are being punished. Right. And right. so now you're poor and you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. And Craven in the 70s was very disturbed by the way that that divided American society rather than uniting it. And you see that that, that is a through line in all of his films mm -hmm. because he was very consciously an intellectual filmmaker in what then was considered a thoroughly disreputable genre. Sort of like um, the great sci-fi writers of the 50s and 60s. But just the idea that, you know, you could go through and sort of insert these very biting critiques about class, race, whatever, but it was genre. So it wasn't like a high-minded art film. It was it was something something else entirely and using genre in an interesting way. And in fact, that's behind the reason that I'm the person who went to see Star Wars and yes. came out of it and said, meh. That was literally what I was going to ask next. So I was like, first of all, where did you see it? Who Was it just like a bunch of kids? Like, who was seeing this? Well, I wasn't a kid in 1977, right, no, 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 right. so it was right. not a bunch of kids. But we were certainly young. Yeah. And I went to see it with a couple of people I was in school with. Mm -hmm. And I saw it on 86th and Lexington. There used mm -hmm. to be a lot of theaters there. Now I think there's one left, maybe. Mm -hmm. And people were already starting to talk about it. And I, I just came out of it and said, meh. <laughs> it was fine. I didn't hate that movie. I certainly wasn't bored by that movie, but it was not a movie that spoke to me in any way except, okay, this is this is a Western in outer space. That's, okay, that's an idea. It certainly wasn't the first time I'd seen that idea, but it was an idea. It was a concept. Mm -hmm. It didn't make me want to see it a second time. I certainly was not lining up to see it three and four and five times the way people were, partly because clearly I was not its audience. I was, I was not a 14-year-old boy, basically, yeah. and was never going to be a 14-year-old boy. So I wasn't <laughs> going to grow into being the audience right. for Star Wars. But I thought there was a fundamental hollowness to it, which is why I've just, I, I just don't care about Star Wars in general. Mm -hmm. And I didn't care about that movie in particular in the way I cared about The Hills Have Eyes. Right. I did care about that because it made me think. And it made me think I want to see something else that filmmaker does. Star Wars didn't. It just kind of rolled off me as, well, that, that, that was a thing. The, the theater was air-conditioned. That was nice. <laughs> and I would have forgotten about it had it not become completely impossible to forget about it. Yeah. I remember watching it as a kid and sort of being like, this is the thing that people are obsessed with mm -hmm. and being confused by that. And my confusion has really never gone away. That's sound like a total elitist jerk for a second. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you watch um, Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress, it's very obviously a remake of that. If we're talking about filmmakers uh, remaking mm -hmm. famous art house films in genre and it just, I don't care about the big themes. I don't feel like the big themes are actually there. I feel like, George Lucas is somebody, and I, you know, he's proven this with the later films that he has made, that he is somebody who is really good as a marketer, as a designer of toys, as a builder of universes, but to actually like put words in people's mouths and direct them and have them express human emotion, my God, he's completely incompetent. And I just don't, I don't care. Yeah. And, and for me, it's fine. There are plenty of things in the world. <laughs> This one is not for me. Yeah. And I mean, when I saw Star Wars, I was 19. So yeah. I was not that far off its target age, but I was clearly not the emotional age for that movie at all. I wanted to see something with a little more 
thinking attached to it than I could attach to it. I just didn't get it. Are you a Star Wars fan? Are you a secret? No, I, I, I find it... I, I mean, I think they're fun, I suppose, but mm. they are rather childish, yeah. you know, in the dialogue and the script and the characters. And oh, and the names. The names important. just kill me. They, they all sound, all those names sound like things babies say. <laughs> it's just, and yeah. that adds to the Darth child. Vader. Darth yeah. Vader. Darth Vader. <laughs> yes. It's true. Uh, it it just it sounds like baby talk, mm -hmm. and that definitely I think for me added to the feeling that it was childish, mm -hmm. and the names just got worse and worse mm -hmm. as the movies went on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, Jar Jar Binks. You don't even have to hate the character. <laughs> All you have to do is hear Jar Jar Binks, and that's it. yeah, that's it. And you can see like a little baby smacking at the yeah. at the uh, the playpen. Like, Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> That's that's my Star Wars problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I certainly I mean no disrespect to people who love those movies, especially people who saw them as kids because they were just part of their childhood and they yeah. want to keep on reliving that the the pleasure and the happiness that those movies gave them and that's great. I wasn't there for that at the right time. Right. Mm -hmm. So and everyone I know who was who was, you know, a young person in 77 the toys were a big part of it. Absolutely, yeah. They really were. They grew up with Star Wars everything, and that enhanced their, you know, love of this film. Yeah. You know, I can't help but wonder, growing up in that, you know, a little bit afterward, just seeing how, again, like you were saying, it's not to deprive anyone or say it's bad that this thing means a lot to you. It's just that, not for us. But, like, it's, I can't help but wonder if these Marvel films now, do they have that same memorableness that I'm just not picking up on. Can I really remember distinctly something from a Marvel movie that's like, you know, it's like, wow, that really, that really stuck with me. And I, I kind of can't. And I feel like part of the reason is because if you have a 30 minute fight scene or sort of a big action sequence that sort of culminates the movie, like how could you have any one second of that be memorable if that's, if it just has to sustain for that long? And I'm just like, that more than anything makes me worry about the future of movies. Is if if it's just like kind of easily disposable stuff, is anyone going to care about movies in the future? Well, you know the thing about the Marvel movies, and again, I was not a comic book reader, mm -hmm. but I know that the appeal of the Marvel movies to a lot of fans is that it's drawing on this existing mythology from right. the Marvel comic books, and a very relationship-oriented backstory, mm -hmm. where everybody's a family or they want to be part of a family or they're creating a family for themselves. And I think that that backstory gives a resonance to those movies mm -hmm. that, again, they don't really have for me because I didn't grow up reading those comics. And in a way, that brings us back to Star Wars mm -hmm. because Star Wars is superficially like a Marvel movie, mm -hmm. except that it doesn't have all that backstory before the movie was made mm -hmm. and I don't think that it gives you the kind of at least complexity of character relationships that you get with the Marvel movies mm -hmm. because it wasn't there to start with right. you know it's, it's like when you talk about vampire movies okay they have at this point an enormous series of resonances that start with Dracula which is a, a fairly complicated novel in terms of character relationships and then has been built through a series of subsequent movies. 
particularly the Hammer movies that obviously revitalized Dracula as a character. And it just means vampire movies have all of that accrued to them culturally. It's, it's like a layer of barnacles mm -hmm. that have built on top of that basic character. Star Wars has had to try to build that going forward mm -hmm. by adding all of these characters. And then, well, we found out that what we thought was part one was actually part four, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was all this stuff that happened before, but it had to be given to you retroactively. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's easier, actually, to find that complexity in the Star Wars movies now because you can see all the, the prequel movies first and get a sense of where all of that history comes from. I say hypothetically here because I'm not haven't done it and I'm not going to do it because that movie just didn't grab me in the right place at the right time. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. I could talk about The American Friend, because that one is a little bit fresh in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I like that film a lot, The American Friend, directed by Vim Vendors, a adaptation of, of Patricia Highsmith's Ripley's Game, one of mm -hmm. her Ripley novels with... Dennis Hopper starring as Tom Ripley and Bruno Ganz as Jonathan Zimmerman, a picture framer with a terminal blood disease, some sort of unnameable disease. <laughs> and <laughs> but, therefore unfixable disease. And, yes. and therefore unfixable. And he has a family and he wants the family to be provided for. So skipping ahead, Dennis Hopper is he's kind of like an art scene shyster. He buys forged art and then he hikes up the price in uh, auction houses. And he's also friends with this French gangster and he convinces the gangster to try to hire Bruno Gans to commit a hit on another gangster. And uh, so he does that. But then, then Dennis Hopper and Bruno Gans initiate this friendship, which is very nice. And then Dennis Hopper ends up joining in on the hit and murderous hijinks ensue. It's a caper. <laughs> it's a caper of sorts. But again, the look of it is really something else. The color palette has a lot of muted earth tones with splashes of more vibrant colors like reds and even neon green. I don't, I've never seen neon green used before in a film like that. That's not actual neons mm -hmm. that's the color neon green on a television set or on something in the in in the scene in the setting mm -hmm. um and the friendship the acting of the two main characters is very naturalistic very effective which is really something considering that they're speaking in different languages and some of them are speaking in english with different accents but it still comes across as very believable and effective film. And one of them is Dennis Hopper. And one of them is Dennis Hopper, who had just acted in Apocalypse Now before joining the production. And then it was also released the same year in 77 as Henry Jaglum's uh, Tracks, where he acts a little bit similar. He's, he's very nutty in both roles. Uh, and in Tracks, he's improvising a lot. So you can see that this is what he is drawn to acting like. 
<laughs> which is his true form. His true form, yes. yeah. Oh, I always suspected that in, in Apocalypse Now, if is the middle word in life, was an improvisation. I don't know whether it was or not, but I suspect because it has that Dennis Hopper looniness to mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. that I feel as though Dennis Hopper always had this cloud of ideas and words mm-hmm. swirling around his head. And sometimes he would just reach up and grab something out of that cloud, mm-hmm. regardless of what film he was doing or to whom he was speaking, either in the film or real life, and put it out. <laughs> and somehow it would always fit in because Dennis Hopper creates this world of his own, no matter where he is or what he's doing, in real life or in a film. It's like the Hopperverse just <laughs> swirls around him and becomes a part. It's, it's like a great big amoeba of... Hopperness mm-hmm. that goes with him everywhere. It's really laid bare in that documentary about him. I forget what it's called. The American Dreamer, yeah. Is there anything else on here that you really wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Well, there are a couple of things that are on this list that I, I want to talk about just because they made a very particular impact on sure, me when yeah. I saw them. And one of them was Ken Wiederhorn's Shockwaves, mm-hmm. which, first of all, I loved because... Even then, it was really hard to do anything new with zombies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I've always been fascinated that zombies made it into the pantheon of great horror monsters. Because unlike the man-made monster, unlike the vampire, unlike the werewolf, there aren't a lot of directions you can go with zombies because they're zombies. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, as... Somebody says in Night of the Living Dead, they're dead, they're all messed up. Mm-hmm. That pretty much sums it up for zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, except that in films prior to Night of the Living Dead, they're specifically associated with Haitian voodoo practices. They've mm-hmm. actually been drawn up from the dead by a particular person and can be used to that person's will. I mean, you see that in White Zombie with Bella Lugosi. Post-Romero, they simply become these shambling, walking eating things that don't think, don't speak, just they shamble and they eat. The thing that I love about shockwaves is that, first of all, they're a fusion of a real-life evil and a horror movie evil because the zombies there are Nazis Mm -hmm. (laughs) who have emerged from a Nazi submarine that was sunk off the coast of Florida. So there are these Aryan uber mention in appearance. They're blonde. They're jackbooted. They have these fabulous goggles over their eyes. But they're also zombies. And the sight of them rising out of, of the sea is absolutely fascinating to me. It just brings together a whole lot of things into an image that I had never seen before in a horror movie. I mean, you can watch that whole movie and there's really not a lot to remember other than that. There's a lot of running through like a mangrove forest and a certain amount of screaming because there's always running and screaming in zombie movies. But those zombies rising up from the sea are just an absolutely indelible image. I agree. I totally agree. Those zombies look incredible. (laughs) They're just fabulous. They are as fabulous as a zombie can look. (laughs) And then there's poor Peter Cushing relegated to a very small role in that movie. But he, you know how 
people are divided between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. Okay, with Hammer movie lovers, it was Cushing or Lee. Mm -hmm. And I really did always love Peter Cushing mm -hmm. the best. Which brings us back to Star Wars. Exactly. He mm -hmm. got that paycheck for yeah. Star Wars. So yeah, I'm sure he was, was I'm fine. sure <laughs> I am sure he was paid more for that than he was paid for every Hammer movie he did oh, put sure. together. Sure. To be Grand Moff Tarkin. And you know, he's actually good. Yeah. He really is. I mean, he is truly you believe that he is a fanatic mm -hmm. and he is going to do whatever has to be done. Mm -hmm. That's just all there is to it. There's a sense of real menace to him that I don't feel in most of the Star, War, the, the Star Wars universe, mm -hmm. you know. And the other movie that I have to mention is Rituals, which is the other deliverance, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. But to me, in a way, was far more horrifying than deliverance. And I think it's, it's about five Canadian doctors, one of whom is Hal Holbrook, um, who are going off for like one of those man, mancations and um, wind up in a forest being pursued by something very, someone very, very bad. And there is something more personally dirty and nasty about rituals, even leaving aside, you know, even accounting for the squeal like a pig scene in Deliverance, which is pretty nasty and down and dirty. But I remember seeing rituals, I think maybe at the Village East, something mm -hmm. like that, um, a theater that wasn't famous for showing that, that kind of movie and just coming out of it and, and feeling, ugh, God, I need to <laughs> wash my hands. This movie was so disturbing and creepy. And have Holbrook is one of the doctors, which is just great. <laughs> Not the kind of actor that you often saw in films like that. So that one is definitely on my list of 77 films that is like a little thorn stuck in my brain. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that on your fantasy slate of things you would have seen in the theater in 77 that you want to talk about? I genuinely liked Three Women a lot. Oh, me too. And I know a lot of people hated it. They found it way too slow. And I think part of what people hated about it was it was completely about those women. Mm -hmm. They're like, not enough guys in that movie. And I think that that really did turn off a lot of reviewers at the time. Mm -hmm. It was just these three quirky women drifting in and out of their, in and out of each other's consciousnesses in a way that I found hypnotic. I mean... Yeah. It reminded me of those uh, color slides turning around a, a single bulb where they mm -hmm. kind of blend into each other, which is clearly what it's about. It's about the, the eventual merging of personalities. Right. And that's very Bergman-esque and all. But I found that movie hypnotic where a lot of people found it boring. It's going to show here, actually. And I'm very excited to see it again because it is such a strange experience and it's interesting to think of it in terms of Robert Altman's career I mean he did that he did come back to the five and dying Jimmy Dean Jimmy Dean in terms of representation it's a very ambitious thing to do and like really no one was touching that material at that time no other you know, Francis Ford Coppola did the rain people that but that was kind of it for him and then three women is just so it's very beautiful and it's very slow and it's kind of terrifying if you're a woman I think <laughs> in a way that it might not be for a guy but and again dreamlike and that's yeah. something that I like in a movie because clearly movies aren't dreams and dreams aren't movies right. but watching a movie is going into a there is a dreamlike state to it mm -hmm. particularly when you're seeing a movie theatrically and you know I am somebody who is all for 
home viewing platforms. I love them. They allow me to see far more movies than I was able to see in the past. They allow you, obviously, to go back and see things that you missed when they were in theaters. But even with all the things that people today say are wrong with the theatrical movie experience, and in general, they're right. Those things are wrong. Movie audiences are a real pain in the ass now. (laughs) Even in films where you don't expect it. I mean, in Times Square, okay, you always expected that movie audiences would be rowdy and that, in fact, audience participation was part of that experience. I mean, there was always somebody to say, don't go down those stairs, you bitch. (laughs) Because, of course, you knew there was somebody with a knife down there. So why were you going down those stairs? And that participatory aspect was very much there. And for the right movie could be a lot of fun. Obviously, for a movie that you were really trying to focus on, not so much fun. Although it's slightly off topic, I remember seeing The Wolfen in a Times Square theater. And The Wolfen is definitely your kind of werewolf movie that you would think would not play well in Times Square because it didn't really deliver the goods on a regular basis. And they were absolutely hypnotized by it. It was a great audience and it was a full theater and people were sitting there really watching that movie. Maybe the fact that it took place in New York and it was appealing uh, to them, but it was an unexpected Times Square movie experience. But to come back to what I began to say, going to the movies is hypnotic because your attention is focused and it's focused on that light, Mm -hmm. that sort of hypnotic light in front of you. And that is something that you don't really get with a home viewing experience, even if you build your own home theater, it's not quite the same. I think one of the last movie palaces that we had in Philadelphia was pretty much run into the ground by the audiences. I mean, it's just a horrible thing to say, but we had this beautiful theater in Philadelphia called, it had different names, but it was mainly called The Boyd, and then it was it became the Sam Eric, and in its incarnation as the Sam Eric, it just showed whatever kind of blockbuster big movies at the time and it was just became literally a trashy theater it was just you know the floors were always sticky from sodas and people were just always like throwing things at the screen it was it became one of those theaters and then so in 2002 it was closed and then 2015 it was mostly demolished but they also would use the theater as a venue for the Philadelphia International Film Festival sometimes. So I have a lot of good memories of going to films there. I know one was Takeshi Kitano's Fireworks. Mm, yes. I saw there. and um, But like you said, the experience of an audience in the theater can be transformative in many different ways. Absolutely. I think it's when people started bringing babies to theaters <laughs> that it's kind of that was... The end. Turning point. Yeah, it really was. And I do, un- I do understand the economics of that. I understand that you just, your parents, you want a night out, you can't afford a babysitter, you figure the baby will sleep. Well, the baby won't. No. I think we all know that. But so I get where that comes from. But that really makes going to a movie not going to a movie in the hypnotic sense because you cannot be hypnotized by what's on the screen if there is a baby screaming. Mm-hmm. Right. Probably the generation right before mine was the last generation who really grew up where movie theaters were a space where you went and you were quiet and you had a communal experience 
with other moviegoers in which you shared your moviegoing experience rather than an experience where your fellow moviegoers disrupted your moviegoing experience by taking you out of the movie. Mm. And that's a shame. Yeah. But it's why, again, I feel like, you know what? I'll see it at home. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I'll watch it on disc. I'll stream it. That's fine by me because I, ac- I actually can be absorbed in that movie by myself. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end it there. But before we do, it would be great if we went around and each of us said a film that we saw recently that we liked in a theater, on streaming, wherever. I saw Scarecrow, which I had never seen that film before. It's by um, Jerry Schatzberg. And you know, I, I like all of Jerry Schatzberg's films a lot, including Honeysuckle Rose, I think is like a totally under song masterpiece um i think uh i shouldn't say masterpiece it's a great film um puzzle of a downfall child another amazing film and scarecrow is i mean it's sort of you know i was talking earlier about the prototypical new hollywood film and this is very much that where it's like two guys on the road doing stuff investigating manhood what does it mean um (laughs) and But it really transcends that because it is so beautiful and where the story goes and when Al Pacino's character's ex-wife shows up and where having a good time on the road, uh, being a man, where the the toll it takes on a woman, uh, it's kind of amazing. And I, you know, I thought it was um, great. I saw War for the Planet of the Apes Mm -hmm. and it was good. (laughs) And it was a really good theatrical experience, frankly. It was a, a serious movie made for a mainstream audience, extraordinarily well acted, given the level of special effects required in it. And uh, I was completely gripped by it as a drama. Have you, se- have you seen the original sequels to the Planet of the Apes movies? Most of them. Okay. How does the new sort of direction they're taking it stack up to those? Because where they took the original sequels to the Planet of the Apes movies is kind of insane and like Marxist almost. <laughs> um, politically, not Marxist for yeah. sure. Uh, but I think very serious about the toll of violence mm. of the unwillingness to find a common ground, not just between, in this movie, apes and men, but between men and men. Mm -hmm. And that is the major underlying theme of that movie, is that the human race can't get it together to get (laughs) along with each other. And it makes their relationship with the apes that much worse because they don't regard them as human. And Mm -hmm. not regarding others as human is certainly something that is very much uh, in the world's air today. Yes which I think gives that movie a a very current potency. I mean, I felt like I had seen an adult movie in a popular format that was was actually talking about important things. So I was impressed. I saw I Called Him Morgan, a documentary about the jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan. It it played for a little while at Metrograph, but I watched it on Netflix. You can stream it. And it's a good documentary, and I was interested in how they used – the materials at hand to kind of shape the documentary because you have a lot of footage and images of Lee Morgan, of course, because he was a famous trumpeter, but the film is more about his wife who murdered him. It's really fascinating, fascinating story. She kind of, she picked him up uh, and put him back on his feet when he was deep into a heroin addiction so in a way, she saved his life completely, and then years later, she murdered him. 
really fascinating story. And the film is really more focused on her, but she was a strange woman who, it's not so strange, but she didn't like to have her picture taken. So there aren't many images of her in the film, and yet the film is still about her. And they're really just two interviews. There's one interview with her Mm. that was conducted just before she died, which is very interesting. And then another interview with Lee Morgan that was in their home in the 70s. So on the one hand, you have a lot of images coming at you of Lee Morgan and whatever they had on hand to sort of just sort of throw at you. But then when you think about it, they didn't have too much to work with and they still sculpted an interesting documentary out of it. Thank you both for coming. This was excellent. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine or check out our app available on Android and iOS at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.